Ernest Corregosin Boyle, who writes under T. Corregosin Boyle, when he spoke last summer, at, or went to the Earthling to do a signing last summer, Penny introduced him, T. Corregosin Boyle, a voice from the audience said, and how do you spell that? Without missing a beat, he said, T-O-M. <laughs> so we know him as Tom. He lives here in Santa Barbara, an author, and also teaches down at UC, USC. Uh, he's been down there for over 20 years. And he's an unusual writer in two ways in my book. First of all, each book is quite different of his. They uh, deal sometimes with history. The Road to Wildville was about the Kellogg Serial Man and the Battle Creek Spa. It became a movie with Anthony Hopkins. Sometimes he will do a contemporary book, which his latest one, The Tortilla Curtain, takes place in Southern California. Two couples, one a very wealthy yuppie type up on top of a canyon hill, and one a, um, a, a Latino couple down along the creek illegally. Those two clash in the book. The second thing that strikes me about Boyle's books is the way he gets to the comic side of life, sometimes a bit wacky, and also how he cuts to the dark side of human nature, and that includes my human nature. So when I read Boyle's books, I feel a little uncomfortable and squirm, and a squirming reader is one who thinks. Boyle's books make you think. He's unusual, too, in another way. He lives in the first Frank Lloyd Wright house built in California, here in Santa Barbara in 1909. So he's an unusual writer living in a gorgeous house. And we're lucky enough to have him this evening to read to us a short story. And then it'll be followed with questions. So as he reads, think of questions you might want to ask an extraordinary writer like this. There are the two speakers on each side, so when the questions are asked, come up to the speakers and we can move and alternate rather quickly and get the questions out. So it's with great, great pleasure I present Tom. Well, good evening. Uh, Susan has already stolen my fire. I was going to complain about the drive down here. 1.4 miles on my odometer. Um, let's see. I'll be the first. You, you can be the first. I'm making an announcement in public for the first time. I'm changing my middle name. I'm dumping Karagasin in favor of Netanyahu. And here's the reason. Politics aside, Bibi Netanyahu has the best name of any public figure ever. Because once you say it aloud, you can't stop saying it. Um, I didn't choose the rubric of uh, tonight's gathering, being a writer. Um, I did, however, read Jay Peruni's biography of Steinbeck last year, and in it, he tells this story about Steinbeck. Steinbeck appeared at a conference like this, and the very same topic, how to be a writer, being a writer. And he came to the microphone, said one word, and sat down again. I'm sure you know what that word is, write. But I'm a little more expansive than Steinbeck. And um, I'd like to do two things tonight. Um, I'd like to show you what I do, first of all. Uh, I love to uh, read stories aloud. I, I think it really connects us with uh, our earliest experiences of stories. That is, mom, and sometimes dad, reading stories to us when we were kids. It's great for a writer like me to do because, as you all know, being writers, uh, you work privately, quietly. There's no applause. No one cares. 
And if you do publish something, then you get a couple of quibbling letters six years later, you know. Uh, but when you read aloud, uh, you can, as Susan says, make the audience squirm a bit, and you can see the reaction and really enjoy it. Uh, after that, uh, knowing that uh, this conference f likes to focus on nuts and bolts, I'll talk to you a little bit about uh, my work habits and uh, be happy to answer your questions regarding my career. Uh, anything you'd like to know, money, agents, uh, how I go about working, no math questions, please. <laughs> but anything else we can do and for as long as you like. Um, the story I'd like to read you tonight is one of the uh, more recent ones I've done. And uh, I'll speak a little bit about uh, the inspiration for it, which may give you, uh, uh, may uh, eliminate some of your questions, actually. Um, I often get uh, ideas for stories in particular, which, which are generally uh, set in a contemporary scene from uh, things people tell me, things I overhear, uh, newspaper articles. In this case, this story came from a little thing I read in the LA Times about a year and a half ago, and here it is. A group of women in LA uh, have uh, formed a club, and the purpose of the club is to meet men. But um, they're all fed up with the kind of sleaze bags they meet in the singles bars in LA and all of that, so they travel widely. Uh, they arrange a tour, they go, and the, the purpose of it is to meet men uh, to, uh, with the hope of romantic attachments. And uh, in this case, and I don't remember how many of them there were. Let's say 107. In this case, 107 of them uh, booked a tour for three days over a, uh, a long weekend in Alaska. And uh, I have uh, written the result of that. This story is called Termination Dust. There were 107 of them, of all ages, shapes, and sizes, from 25 and 30-year-olds in dresses that looked like they were made of saran wrap, to a couple of big-beamed older types in pantsuits who could have been somebody's mother, and I mean somebody grown, with a goatee beard and a job at McDonald's. I was there to meet them when they came off the plane from Los Angeles, I and Peter Merchant, whose travel agency had arranged the whole weekend in partnership with the Beverly Hills concern. And there were a couple of other guys there, too eager beavers like J.J. Hotel, and the bad element by which I mean Bud's Withers specifically, who didn't want to cough up the 150 bucks for the buffet, the Malibu beach party, and the auction afterward. They were hoping for maybe a sniff of something gratis, but I was there to act as a sort of buffer and make sure that didn't happen. Peter was all smiles as we came up to the first of the ladies, Susan Abrams by her name tag, and started handing out corsages, one to a lady, and chimed out in chorus, Welcome to Anchorage, land of the grizzly and the true-hearted man. Well, it was pretty corny. It was Peter's idea, not mine. And I felt a little foolish with the first few hard-looking women, divorcees for sure, maybe even legal secretaries or lawyers into the bargain. But when I saw this little one with eyes the color of glacial melt about six deep in the line, I really began to perk up. Her name tag was done in calligraphy, hand-lettered instead of computer-generated like the rest of them. And that really tugged at me, the care that went into it. And I gave her hand a squeeze and said, Hi, Jordy. Welcome to Alaska, when I gave her the corsage. She seemed a little dazed, and I chalked it up to the flight and the drinks and the general party atmosphere that must certainly have prevailed on that plane 107 single women on their way for the Labor Day weekend in a state that boasted two eligible bachelors for everyone. 
But that wasn't it at all. She hardly had a glass of Chablis, as it turned out. What I took to be confusion, lethargy, whatever, was just wonderment. As I was later to learn, she'd been drawn to the country all her life, had read and dreamed about it since she was a girl growing up in Altadena, California, within sight of the Rose Bowl. She was bookish, an English teacher, in fact. And she had a new worked leather high-grade edition of Wuthering Heights wedged under the arm that held her suitcase and traveling bag. I guessed her to be maybe late 20s, early 30s. Thank you, she said in this whispery little voice that made me feel about 13 years old all over again. And then she squinted those snow-melt eyes to take in my face and the spread of me. I should say, I'm a big man, one of the biggest in the bush around Boynton. 6'5 and 242, and not much of that going yet to fat. And then she read my name off my name tag and added in a deep diving puff of a little floating wisp of a voice, Ned. <laughs> and she was gone. Then she was gone and it was the next woman in line with a face like a topographic map in the grip of a lumberjack. And then the next, and the next. And all the while I'm wondering how much Geordie's going to go for at the auction and if 125, which is about all I'm prepared to spend, is going to be enough. The girls, women, ladies, whatever, rested up at their hotel for a while and did their ablutions and ironed their outfits and put on their makeup, while Peter and Susan Abrams fluttered around making sure all the little details of the evening had been worked out. I sat at the bar drinking Mexican beer to get in the mood. J.J., excuse me, I barely finished my first when I looked up and who did I see but J.J. and Bud with maybe a half dozen local types in tow, all of them looking as lean and hungry as a winter cat. Bud ignored me and started chatting up the Anchorage boys with his eternal line of bullshit about living off the land in his cabin in the bush outside Boynton, which was absolutely the purest undiluted nonsense, as anybody who'd known him for more than half a minute could testify. But J.J. settled in beside me with a combination yodel and sigh and offered to buy me a drink, which I accepted. Got one picked out, he said, and he had this mocking grin on his face, as if the whole business of the Los Angeles contingent was a bad joke. Though I knew it was all an act, and he was as eager and sweetly optimistic as I was myself. The image of 107 women in their underwear suddenly flashed through my mind. And then I pictured Geordie in a black brassiere and matching panties, and I blushed and ducked my head and tried on an awkward little smile. Yeah, I admitted. Well, I'll be damned if Mr. Confidence down there, a gesture for Bud, who was neck deep in guano with the weekend outdoorsmen in their L.L. Bean outfits, doesn't have one too. Says he's got her room number already and told her he'd bid whatever it takes for a date with her, even if he had to dip into the family fortune. My laugh was a bitter, strangled thing. Bud was just out of jail, where he'd done six months on a criminal mischief charge for shooting out the windows in three cabins and the sunny side of my store on the main street, the only street, in downtown Boynton, population 170. He didn't have a pot to piss in except what he got from the VA or welfare or whatever it was. It was hard to say, judging from the way he seemed to confuse fact and fiction. That and the rat trap cabin he'd built on federal land along the Yukon River, and that was condemned. I didn't even know what he'd done with his kid after Linda left him, and I didn't want to guess. How'd he even get here, I said. And J.J. was a little man with a bald pate and a full snow-white beard, a widower and a musician who cooked as mean a loose tri-tip with garlic and white gravy as any man had come into the country in the past ten years. <laughs> he shrugged, set his beer mug down on the bar. Same as you and me. I was incredulous. You mean he drove? Where'd he get the car? 
All I know is he told me last week he had this buddy who was going to lend him a brand new Toyota Land Cruiser for the weekend, and that furthermore, he was planning on going home to Brighton with the second Mrs. Withers, even if he did have to break down and shell out the 150 for the party and all. It's an investment, he says, as if any woman would be crazy enough to go any place with him, let alone a cabin out in the hind end of nowhere. I guess I was probably stultified with amazement at this point, and I couldn't really manage a response. I was just looking over the top of my beer at the back of Bud's head and his elbow resting on the bar, and then the necks of his boots, as if I could catch a glimpse of the plastic feet he's got stuffed in there. I'd seen them once, those feet, when he first got back from the hospital and he came round the store for a pint of something, already half drunk and wearing a pair of shorts under his coat, though it was minus 30 out. Hey, Ned, he said to me in this really nasty, accusatory voice, you see what you and the rest of them done to me? And he flipped open the coat to show his ankles and the straps and the plastic feet that were exactly like the pink molded feet of a mannequin in a department store window. I was worried. I didn't want to let on to JJ, but I knew Bud. I knew how smooth he was, especially if you weren't forewarned. And I knew women found him attractive. I kept thinking, what if it's Jordy he's after? But then I told myself the chances were pretty remote, what with 107 eager women to choose from. And even if it was, even if it was, there were still 106 others, and one of them had to be for me. Statistics. There were 32 women out of a population of 170 in Burnton. All of them married and all of them invisible, even when they were sitting around the bar I run in the back room of the store. Average winter temperature was minus 12, and there was a period of nearly two months when we hardly saw the sun. Add to that the fact that seven out of 10 adults in Alaska have a drinking problem, and you can imagine what life was like on the bad days. I was no exception to the rule. The winter was long, the nights were lonely, and booze was a way to take the edge off the loneliness and boredom that just slowed you down and slowed you down till you felt like you were barely alive. I was no drunk, don't get me wrong, nothing like Bud Withers, not even close. And I tried to keep a check on myself, going without even so much as a whiff of the stuff every other day at least, and trying my best to keep a hopeful outlook. Which is why I left the bar after two beers to go back to Peter's place and douse myself with aftershave, solidify the hair around my bald spot with a blast of hairspray, and slip into the sport coat I'd last worn at Chiz Peltz's funeral. He froze to death the same night Bud lost his feet, and I was the one who had to pry him away from the back door of the ballroom in the morning. He was like a bronze statue, huddled over the bottle with his parka pulled up over his head, and that was how we had to bury him, bottle and all. <laughs> then I made my way back through the roaring streets to the hotel and the ballroom that could have contained all of Boynton and everybody in it, feeling like an overawed freshman, against, uh, pressed up against the wall at the weekly social. But I wasn't a freshman anymore, and this was no social. I was 34 years old, and I was tired of living like a monk. I needed someone to talk to, a companion, a helpmeet, a wife, and this was my best chance of finding one. As soon as I saw Jordy standing there by the hors d'oeuvre table, the other 106 women vanished from sight, and I knew I'd been fooling myself back there at the bar. She was the one, the only one, and the longing for her was a continuous ache that never let up from that moment on. She was with another woman, and they had their heads together, talking, but I couldn't have honestly told you whether this other woman was tall or short, blonde, brunette, or redhead. I saw Jordy and nothing more. Hi, I said the sport coat gouging at my underarms and clinging to my back like a living thing. Remember me? She sure did. 
and she reached up to take hold of my hand and peck a little kiss into the outer fringe of my beard. The other woman, the invisible one, faded away into the background before she could be introduced. I found myself at a loss for what to say next. My hands felt big and cumbersome as if they'd just been stapled on as I came through the door and the sport coat flapped its wings and dug its talons into my back. I wanted a drink, badly. Would you like a drink, Jordy whispered, fracturing the words into tiny little nuggets of meaning. She was holding a glass of white wine in one hand and she was wearing a pair of big, glittery, dangling earrings that hung all the way down to the sculpted bones of her bare shoulders. I let her lead me up to the long folding table with the four bartenders hustling around on one side and all the women pressed up against the other while the raw-boned bush crazies did their best to talk them to death. And then I had a double scotch in my hand and felt better. It's beautiful country, I said, toasting her, it, the ballroom, and everything beyond with a clink of our glasses. Especially out my way, in Poynton. Peaceful, I said, you know? Oh, I know, she said. And for the first time, I noticed a hint of something barely contained bubbling just below the surface of that smoky voice. Or at least I can imagine. I mean, from what I've read, that's in the Yukon watershed, isn't it, Boynton? This was my cue, and I was grateful for it. I went into a rambling five-minute oration on the geographic and geological high points of the bush around Boynton, with sidelights on the local flora, fauna, and human curiosities, tactfully avoiding any reference to the sobering statistics that made me question what I was doing there myself. <laughs> it was a speech, all right, one that would have done any town booster proud. When I was through with it, I saw that my glass was empty and that Geordie was squirming in her boots to get a word in edgewise. Sorry, I said, dipping my head in apology. I, I didn't mean to talk your ear off. It's just that... And here I got ahead of myself, my tongue loosened by the seeping burn of the scotch. We don't get to talk much to anybody new unless we make the trek to Fairbanks, and that's pretty rare, and especially not to someone as good-looking, I mean, as attractive as you. Jordy managed to flush prettily at the compliment. And then she was off on a speech of her own, decrying the lack of the human dimension in city life, the constant fuss and hurry and hassle, the bad air, the polluted beaches, and, this really got my attention, the lack of men with old-fashioned values, backbone, and grit. But she delivered this last line. I don't know if that's the way she phrased it exactly, but that was the gist of it. She leveled those glaciated eyes on me, and I felt like I could walk on water. We were standing in line at the buffet table when Bud Withers shuffled in. It was surprising how well he managed to do on those plastic feet. If you didn't know what was wrong with him, you'd never guess. You could see something wasn't quite right. Every step he took looked like a recovery, as if he'd just been shoved from behind. But as I say, it wasn't all that abnormal. Anyway, I maneuvered myself in between Jordy and his line of sight, hunkering over her like an eagle masking its kill, and went on with our conversation. She was curious about life in Boynton, really obsessing over the smallest details, and I've been telling her how much freedom you have out in the bush, how you can live your life the way you want, in tune with nature, instead of shut up in some stucco box next to a shopping mall. But what about you, she said. Aren't you stuck in your store? Oh, I get antsy. I just close the place down for a couple days. She looked shocked, or, or maybe skeptical is a better word. What about your customers? I shrugged to show her how casual everything was. It's not like I run the store for the public welfare, I said, and they do have the nougat to drink at, Clarence Ford's place. Actually, Clarence meant to call it the nugget, but he's a terrible speller, and I always go out of my way to give it a literal pronunciation just to irritate him. <laughs> so anytime I want, 
dead of winter, whatever, I'll just hang out the gone trapping sign, dig out my snowshoes, and go off and run my trap line. And Jordy seemed to consider this, the hair around her temples frizzing up with the steam from the serving trays. And what are you after, she said finally. Mink? Martin, lynx, fox, wolf, I said. The food was good. It ought to have been for what we were paying, and I heaped up my plate, but not so much as to make her think I was a hog or anything. There was a silence. I became aware of the music then, a Beach Boys song rendered live by a band from Juno at the far end of the room. <laughs> with a fox, I said, and I didn't know whether she wanted to hear this or not. You come up on him, and he's caught by the foot, and maybe he's tried to gnaw that foot off, and he's snarling like a chainsaw. Well, what you do is, you just wrap him across the snout with a stick, like this, gesturing with my free hand, and it knocks him right out, like magic. Then you just put a little pressure on his throat till he stops breathing, and you get a nice clean fur, you know what I mean? <laughs> I was worried she might be one of those animal liberation nuts that want to protect every last rat, tick, and flea. But she didn't look bothered at all. In fact, her eyes seemed to get distant for a minute. Then she bent over to dish up a healthy portion of the king crab and straightened up with a smile. Just like the pioneers, she said. That was when Bud sniffed us out. He butted right in line, put a hand round Geordie's waist, and drew her to him for a kiss, full plate and all, which she had to hold out awkwardly away from her body or there would have been king crab and avocado salad all down the front of that silky black dress she was wearing. Sorry I'm late, babe, Bud said, and he picked up a plate and began mounding it high with cold cuts and smoked salmon. Jordy turned to me then, and I couldn't read her face, not at all, but of course I knew in that instant that Bud had got to her, and though the chances were 107 to 1 against it, she was the one who'd given him a room number. I was dazed by the realization, and after I got over being dazed, I felt the anger coming up in me like the foam in a loose can of beer. Ned, she murmured, do you know Bud? Bud gave me an ugly look, halfway between a fuck you and a leer of triumph. I tried to keep my cool for Geordie's sake. Yeah, was all I said. She led us to a table in back, right near the band, one of those long banquet-type tables, and Bud and I sat down on either side of her, jockeying for position. Bud, she said, as soon as we were settled, and Ned, turning to me, and then back to him again. I'm sure you can both help me with this, and I really want to know the truth of it, because it's part and parcel of my whole romance with Alaska, and now I've read somewhere that it isn't true. She had to raise her voice to be heard over the strains of my little deuce coop. This was the Malibu beach party, after all, replete with the pile of sand in the corner and a 20-foot-high poster of Gidget in a bikini. And we both leaned in to hear her better. What I want to know is, do you really have 72 different words for snow? In the Eskimo language, I mean. Bud didn't even give me a glance, just started in with his patented line of bullshit, how he'd spent two years with the Inuit up around Point Barrow, chewing walrus hides with the old ladies and dodging polar bears, and how he felt that 72 was probably a low estimate. Then he fell into some dialect he must have invented on the spot, all the while giving Geordie this big, moony smile that made me want to puke, till I took her elbow, and she turned to me, and the faux Eskimo caught like a bone in his throat. We call it Termination dust, I said. She lifted her eyebrows. Bud was on the other side of her, looking bored and greedy, shoveling up his food like a hyperphagic bear. It was the first moment he'd shut his mouth since he'd butted in. It's because of the road, I explained. We're at the far end of it, a two-lane gravel road that runs north from the Alaska Highway and dead ends in Boynton, the last place on the continent you can drive to. 
She was still waiting. The band fumbled through the end of the song and the room suddenly came alive with the buzz of a hundred conversations. Bud glanced up from his food to shoot me a look of unadulterated hate. Go on, she said. I shrugged, toyed with the fork. That's it, I said. The first snow, the first good one, and it's all over till spring. The end, all, all she wrote. If you're in Bolton, you're going to stay there. And if you're not, she asked, something satirical in her eyes as she tucked away a piece of crab with a tiny two-pronged fork. <laughs> Bud answered for me, that you're not going to make it. The auction was for charity, all proceeds to be divided equally among the Fur Trapper's Retirement Home, the AIDS Hospice, and the Greater Anchorage Food Bank. I had no objection to that. I was happy to do my part, but as I said, I was afraid somebody would outbid me for a date with Jordy. Not that the date was anything more than just that, a date, but it was a chance to spend the better part of the next day with the woman of your choice, and when you only had two and a half days, that was a big chunk of it. I talked to JJ and some of the others, and they were all planning to bid on this woman or that, and to take them out on a fishing boat or up in a super cub to see the glaciers east of town, or even out into the bush to look over their cabins and their prospects. Nobody talked about sex. That would demean the spirit of the thing. But it was there, under the surface, like a burning promise. The first woman went for $75. She was about 40 or so, and she looked like a nurse or dental technician, somebody who really knew her way around a bedpan or saliva sucker. <laughs> the rest of us stood around and watched while three men exercised their index fingers, and the auctioneer, who else but Peter, went back and forth between them with all sorts of comic asides until they'd reached their limit. Going once! Going twice, he chimed, milking the moment for all it was worth. Sold to the man in the red hat. I watched the guy, nobody I knew, an Anchorage type, as he mounted the three steps to the stage they'd set up by the sand pit. And I felt something stir inside me when this dental technician of 40 smiled like all the world was melting and gave him a kiss right out of the last scene of a movie, and the two of them went off hand in hand. My heart was hammering like a broken piston. I couldn't see Bud in the crowd, but I knew what his intentions were. And as I said, 125 was my limit. There was no way I was going to go past that no matter what. Shorty came up ninth. Two or three of the women that preceded her were really something to look at, secretaries probably, or cocktail waitresses, but Jordy easily outclassed them. It wasn't only that she was educated, it was the way she held herself, the way she stepped up to the platform with a private little smile and let those unquenchable eyes roam over the crowd till they settled on me. I stood ahead taller than anyone else there, so I guess it wasn't hard to pick me out. I gave her a little wave and then immediately regretted it because I tipped my hand. The first bid was $100 from some clown in a lumberjack shirt who looked as if he'd just been dragged out from under a bush somewhere. I swear there was lint in his hair. Or worse. Peter had said, who'll start us off here? Do I hear an opening bid? And this guy stuck up his hand and said, a hundred, just like that. I was stunned, but I was prepared for. But this was something else altogether. What was this guy thinking? A lumberjack shirt and he was bidding on Jordy? It was all I could do to keep myself from striding through the crowd and jerking the guy out of his boots like some weed along the roadside. But then another hand popped up just in front of me, and this guy must have been 60 if he was a day. The back of his neck all rutted and seamed and piss-yellow hairs growing out of his ears, and he spoke up just as casually as if he was ordering a drink at the bar. 120. I was in a panic. He sat on all sides, and I felt the tongue thickening in my throat as I threw up my arm. One! I gasped. 125! And it was Bud's turn. I heard him before I saw him slouching there in the second row, right up near the stage. 
He didn't even bother raising his hand. One fifty, he said. And right away, the old bird in front of me croaked out, 175. I was in a sweat, wringing my hands till I thought the left would crush the right and vice versa, the sport coat digging into me like a hair shirt, like a straitjacket, too small under the arms and across the shoulders. 125 was my limit absolutely and unconditionally, and even then I'd be straining to pay for the date itself. But I felt my arm jerking up as if it was attached to a wire. 176, I shouted. <laughs> and everybody in the room turned round to stare at me. I heard a laugh from the front, a dirty, sniggering little stab of a laugh that shot hot lava through my veins. Bud's laugh, Bud's mocking, hateful, naysaying laugh, and then Bud's voice crashed through the wall of wonder surrounding my bid and pronounced my doom. Two hundred and fifty dollars, he said, and I stood there stupefied as Peter called out, going once, going twice, and slammed down the gavel. I don't remember what happened next. But I turned away before Bud could shuffle up to the stage and take Geordie in his arms and receive the public kiss that was meant for me. Turned away and staggered toward the bar like a gut-shot deer. I try to control my temper. I really do. I know it's a failing of mine. But I guess I must have gotten a little rough with these two L.L. Bean types that were blocking my access to the scotch. Nothing outrageous. Nothing more than letting them know in no uncertain terms that they were in my path and that if they liked the way their arms still fit in their sockets, they'd dance on out of there like the sugar plum fairy in her court. But still, I regretted it. Nothing else that night rings too clear, not after Geordie went to Bud for the sake of mere money. But I kept thinking over and over as if a splinter was implanted in my brain. How in Christ's name did that unemployed son of a bitch come up with $250? I rang Geordie's room first thing in the morning. Yes, there was that at least. She'd given me her, her room number two, but now I wondered if she wasn't just playing mind games. There was no answer, and that told me something I didn't want to know. I inquired at the desk, and the clerk said she'd checked out the night before. And I must have had a look on my face because he volunteered that he didn't know where she'd gone. It was then that the invisible woman from the cocktail party materialized out of nowhere, visible suddenly in a puke-green running suit with greasy hair and a face all pitted and naked without a hint of makeup. You looking for Geordie, she said, and maybe she recognized me. The drumming in my chest suddenly slowed. I felt ashamed of myself, felt awkward and out of place, my head windy and cavernous from all that sorrowful scotch. Yes, I admitted. She took pity on me then and told me the truth. She went to some little town with a guy from the auction last night. Said she'd be back for the plane Monday. Ten minutes later, I was in my Chevy half-ton, tooling up the highway for Fairbanks and the gravel road to Burnton. I felt an urgency bordering on the manic, and my foot was like a cement block on the accelerator because once Bud got to Burnton, I knew what he was going to do. He ditched the car, which I wouldn't doubt he'd borrowed without the legitimate owner's consent, whoever that might be, and then he'd load up his canoe with supplies and Geordie and run down the river for his trespasser's cabin. And if that happened, Geordie wouldn't be making any plane. Not on Monday. Maybe not ever. I tried to think about Geordie and how I was going to rescue her from all that and how grateful she'd be once she realized what kind of person she was dealing with in Bud and what his designs were. But every time I summoned her face, Buds rose out of some dark hole in my consciousness to blot it out. I saw him sitting at the bar that night he lost his feet, sitting there drinking steadily, though I'd 86 him three times over the course of the past year and three times relented. He was on a tear, drinking with chiz pelts and this Indian I'd never laid eyes on before who claimed to be a full-blooded flathead from Montana. 
It was January, a few days after New Year's, and it was maybe two o'clock in the afternoon and dark beyond the windows. I was drinking too, tending bar but helping myself to the scotch because it was one of those days when time has no meaning and your life drags like it has brakes on it. There were maybe eight other people in the place, Ronnie Perrault and his wife Louise, Roy Treadwell who services snow machines and sells cordwood, Richie Oliver and some others. I don't know where JJ was that day, playing solitaire in his cabin, I guess, staring at the walls, who knows. Anyway, Bud was on his tear, and she started using language I don't tolerate in the bar, not any time, and especially not when ladies are present. And I told him to can it, and things got nasty. The upshot was that I had to pin the Indian to the back wall by his throat and rip Bud's parka half off him before I convinced the three of them to finish up their drinking over at the nougat, which is where they went, looking ugly. Clarence Ford put up with them till around seven or so, and then he kicked them out and barred the door, and they sat in Chiz Peltz's car with the engine running and the heater on full, passing a bottle back and forth till I don't know what hour. Of course, the car eventually ran out of gas, and the three of them passed out like zombies, and the overnight temperature went down to something like minus 60, and as I said, Chiz didn't make it. And now he wound up outside my place, I'll never know. We helicoptered Bud to the hospital in Fairbanks, but they couldn't save his feet. The Indian, I've never seen him since, just seemed to shake it off with the aid of a dozen cups of coffee laced with free bourbon at the nougat. Bud never forgave me or Clarence or anybody else in town. He was a sorehead and griper of the first degree, the sort of person who blames all his miseries on everybody but himself. And now he had Geordie, this sweet, dreamy English teacher who probably thought Alaska was all northern exposure and char people saying, uh, charmingly eccentric people saying witty things to one another. I knew Bud. I knew how he would have portrayed that ratty, illegal, tumble-down cabin to her, and how he would have told her it was just a hop, skip, and jump down the river, and not the 12 miles it actually was. And what was she going to do when she found out? Catch a cab? These were my thoughts as I passed through Fairbanks, headed southeast on the Alaska Highway, and finally turned north for Boynton. It was late in the afternoon, and I still had 180 miles of gravel road to traverse before I even hit Boynton, let alone catch up with Bud. I could only hope he'd stopped off at the nougat for his usual fix of vodka. But the chances of that were slim because he'd want to hustle Jordy down the river before she got a good idea of who he was and what was going on. And that was another thing. I just didn't understand her. Just didn't. He'd put in the highest bid and she was a good sport. Okay. But to drive all night with that slime? To put up with his bullshit for all those crippling hours, maybe even fall for it? Poor Jordy. Poor, poor Jordy. I pulled into Boynton in record time, flipped to the floor all the way, and skidded to a halt in the gravel lot out front of my store. There were only three other cars there, each as familiar as my own, and Ronnie Peralt, who I'd asked to help out for the weekend, was presiding over a very quiet bar. Half the men in town had gone to Anchorage for the big event, thanks to Peter and his unflagging salesmanship. Ronnie, I said, coming into the bar to the strains of Lyle Lovett singing Mac the Knife like he was half dead. You seen Bud? Ronnie was hunched lovingly over a cigarette in a Myers and Coke, holding hands with Louise. He was wearing a Seattle Mariner's cap backwards on his head, and his eyes were distant, the eyes of a man in rum nirvana. <laughs> Howard Walpole, 70 years old and with a bad back and runny eyes, was at the far end of the bar, and Roy Treadwell and Richie Oliver were playing cards at the table by the stove. Ronnie was slow, barely flowing, like the grenadine in the back pantry that hardly gets any heat. I thought, he said, chewing over the words, I thought you wasn't going to be back till Tuesday. 
Hey, Nettie, Doug shouted, squeezing out the diminutive till it was like a screech. How many you bring back? Bud, I repeated, addressing the room at large. Anybody seen Bud? Well, they had to think about that. They're all pretty hazy. While the cat's away, the mice will play. But it was Howard who came out of it first. Sure, he said. I, I seen him. And he leaned so far forward over his drink, I thought he was going to fall into it. Early this morning in a brand new Toyota Land Cruiser, which I don't know where he got, and he had a woman with him. And then, as if remembering some distant bit of trivia, how was that flesh bazaar anyway? You married yet? Louise snickered. Ronnie guffawed, but I was in no mood. Where'd you go? I said, hopeful, always hopeful. But I already knew the answer. Howard did something with his leg, a twitch he developed to ease the pain in his back. I didn't talk to him, he said, but I think he was going downriver. The river wasn't too rough this time of year, but it was still moving at a pretty good clip, and I have to admit I'm not exactly an ace with the canoe. I'm too big for anything that small. Give me a runabout with an Everwood engine any day. And I always feel awkward and top-heavy. But there I was, moving along with the current, thinking one thing and one thing only, Jordy. It would be a bitch coming back up, but there'd be two of us paddling, and I kept focusing on how grateful she was going to be for getting her out of there. More grateful than if I'd bid a thousand dollars for her and took her out for steak three nights in a row. But then the strangest thing happened. The sky went gray, and it began to snow. It just doesn't snow that early in the year, not ever, or hardly ever. But there it was. The wind came up the channel of the river and threw these dry little pellets of ice in my face, and I realized how stupid I'd been. I was already a couple miles downriver from town, and though I had a light parka and mittens with me, a chunk of cheese, loaf of bread, a couple of cokes, that sort of thing, I really hadn't planned on any weather. It was a surprise, a real surprise. Of course, at that point, I was sure it was only a squirrel, something to whiten the ground for a day and then melt off. But I still felt stupid out there on the river without any real protection. And I began to wonder how Jordy would see it, the way she was worried about all the names for snow and how sick at heart she must have been just about then with Bud's shithole of a cabin and no escape and the snow coming down like a life sentence. And I leaned into the paddle. It was after dark when I came around the bend and saw the lights of the cabin through the scrim of snow. I was wearing my parka and mittens now, and I must have looked like a snowman propped up in the white envelope of the canoe, and I could feel the ice forming in my beard where the breath froze coming out of my nostrils. I smelled wood smoke and watched the soft, tumbling sky. Was I angry? Not really. Not yet. I'd hardly thought about what I was doing up to this point. It all just seemed so obvious. The son of a bitch had gotten her, whether it was under false pretenses or not, and Geordie, Sweet Geordie with Emily Bronte tucked under her arm couldn't have imagined in her wildest dreams what she was getting into. No one would have blamed me. For all intents and purposes, but it abducted her. He had. Still, when I actually got there, when I could smell the smoke and see the lamps burning, I felt shy suddenly. I couldn't just bust in and announce that I'd come to rescue her, could I? And I could hardly pretend I just happened to be in the neighborhood. <laughs> Plus, that was Bud in there, and he was as purely nasty as a rattlesnake with a hand clamped around the back of its head. There was no way he was going to like this, no matter how you looked at it. So what I did was pull the canoe up on the bank about 100 yards from the cabin, the scrape of the gravel masked by the snow, and crept up on the place, as stealthy as a big man can be. I didn't want to alert Bud's dog and blow the whole thing. But that was just it, I realized, tiptoeing through the snow like an ice statue come to life. What thing would I blow? I didn't have a plan, not even a clue. In the end, I did the obvious.
snuck up to the window and peered in. I couldn't see much at first, the window all smeared with grime, but I gingerly rubbed the pane with the wet heel of my mitten and things came into focus. The stove in the corner was going, a mouth of flame with the door flung open wide for the fireplace effect. Next to the stove was a table with a bottle of wine on it and two glasses, one of them half full, and I saw the dog then, a Malamute-looking thing, asleep underneath it. There was some homemade furniture, a sort of couch with an old single mattress thrown over it, a couple of crude chairs of bent aspen with the bark still on it. Four or five white plastic buckets of water were lined up against the wall, which was festooned with the usual backcountry junk, snowshoes, traps, hides, the mangy stuffed head of a caribou Bud must have picked up at a fire sale someplace. But I didn't see Bud, or Geordie. And then I realized they must be in the back room, the bedroom. And that made me feel strange, choked up in the pit of my throat as if somebody was trying to strangle me. It was snowing pretty steadily, six inches on the ground at least, and it muffled my footsteps as I worked my way around the cabin to the back window. The night was absolute. The sky so close it was breathing for me, in and out, in and out, and the snow held everything in the grip of silence. A candle was burning in the back window. I could tell it was a candle from the way the light wavered even before I got there. And I heard the music then. Violins all playing in unison, the sort of thing I wouldn't have expected from a lowlife like Bud. And voices, a low, intimate murmur of voices. And that almost stopped me right there, that whispery blur of Geordie's voice and the deeper resonance of Bud's. And for a moment, everything hung in the balance. A part of me wanted to back away from that window, creep back to the canoe and forget all about it. But I didn't. I couldn't. I'd seen her first. I'd squeezed her hand and given her the corsage and admired the hand-lettered name tag, and it wasn't right. The murmur of those voices rose up in my head like a scream, and there was nothing more to think about. My shoulder hit the back door just above the latch and blew the thing off the hinges like it was a toy, and there I was, breathing hard and white to the eyebrows. I saw them in the bed together and heard this little bird-like cry from Geordie and a curse from Bud, and then the dog came hurtling in from the front room as if he'd been launched from a cannon. And I should say here that I like dogs, and that I've never lifted a finger to hurt any dog I've ever owned. But I had to put this one down. I didn't have any choice. I caught him as he left the floor and slammed him into the wall behind me till he collapsed in a heap. Geordie was screaming now, actually screaming, and you would have thought that I was the bad guy, but I tried to calm her. Her arms bare and the comforter pulled up over her breasts and Bud's plastic feet set there like slippers on the floor, telling her a mile a minute that I'd protect her, it was all right, that I'd see that Bud was prosecuted to the fullest extent, the fullest extent. But then Bud was fumbling under the mattress for something like the snake he was, and I took hold of his puny slip of a wrist with the blue-black 38 special in it and just squeezed till his other hand came up, and I caught that one and squeezed it too. Jordy made a bolt for the other room, and I could see she was naked, and I knew right then he must have raped her because there was no way she'd ever consent to anything with a slime like that. Not Jordy, not my Jordy. And the thought of what Bud had done to her made me angry. The gun was on the floor now, and I kicked it under the bed and let go of Bud's wrists and shut up his stream of curses and vile, foul language with a quick stab to the bridge of his nose. It was almost like a reflex. He went limp under the force of that blow, and I was upset, I admit it. I was furious over what he'd done to that girl, and it just seemed like the most natural thing in the world to reach out and put a little pressure on his throat till the raw-looking stumps of his legs lay still on the blanket. That was when I became aware of the music again, the violins swelling up and out of a black plastic boombox on the shelf till they filled the room and the wind blew through the doorway and the splintered door groaned on its broken latch. 
Jordy, I was thinking. Jordy needs me, needs me to get her out of this. And I went into the front room to tell her about the snow and how it was coming down out of season and what that meant. She was crouched in the corner across from the stove and her face was wet and she was shivering. Her sweater was clutched up around her neck and she'd got one leg of her jeans on, but the other leg was bare, sculpted bare and white all the way from her little painted toenails to the curve of her thigh and beyond. It was a hard moment, and I tried to explain it to her. I did. Look outside, I said. Look out there into the night. You see that? She lifted her chin then and looked out beyond the doorway to the back room, beyond Bud on his bed and the dog on the floor and into the gaping hole where the door had been. And there it was, coming down like the end of everything, snow, and there was only one name for it now. I tried to tell her that because we weren't going anywhere. Thank you. Thanks very much. I'll give you a minute to catch your breath, and uh, we can do a Q&A, and uh, we'll talk about work habits and course of my career and whatever else you'd, you'd like to, uh, to chat about tonight. And, uh, you know, when you get toward the end, you may work all day. But, uh, you know, typically I'm done by 2 or 3 o'clock, and then I play. I uh, haul rocks down from the mountains, you know, like Sisyphus. So, uh, I dig holes, I carry steer manure, I go to the beach. Uh, typically something that doesn't require a lot of brain power. And this is why I don't appreciate math questions, you know. <laughs> uh, do you have uh, questions you'd like to ask me about uh, any of these matters or about the story you've heard or, uh, or anything else? I yeah, just yes. uh, read your first work this morning or, uh, for me. The Descent of Man, I wasn't sure if I was having a flashback on LSD when I wrote it. Um, the imagery of the, uh, uh, the Pride Center and the, and the black uh, guy in his language made me think that um, you don't care much for political correctness. <laughs> well, I, uh, as a satirist, which I think I am primarily, it's my job to make fun of everybody from every possible angle, including myself. I appear in a lot of the stories and, uh, and get poked fun at, too. Uh, the story that you mentioned is one of my earliest in my first book, Descent of Man, from 1979, um, and it deals with, again, something that I'd read about. Actually, I think I'd seen a TV documentary. We're talking now mid-70s, when first at the Yerkes Laboratory they had begun to teach chimps to use a computer and, uh, and ex use language. And we thought that we, simians, were the only simians that knew how to use language. And it was just quite a revelation. So I posited a very brilliant chimpanzee by the name of Conrad, who steals the narrator's girlfriend away from him. He's better looking and he's smarter. Uh, you'll be happy to know that there's a, uh, there's a sequel to that story of sorts uh, called The Ape Lady in Retirement, which, which features Conrad when he's older. Uh, and that's in another of my collections, if, if the river was whiskey. Um, and further to this, uh, yes, I do like apes a lot. And my new project, which is centered right here in my new hometown of Montecito, toward the beginning of the century, deals with Stanley McCormick, who lived on the Ribbon Rock Estate. Stanley was the youngest son of Cyrus Hall McCormick, the inventor of the mechanical reaper. And he was a very wealthy man uh, who, in 1904, after having graduated Princeton cum laude, very handsome man, six feet four, of course, multimillionaire, uh, well-traveled, uh, married 
an astonishing woman, Catherine Dexter of Boston. Catherine was the first female graduate in the sciences of MIT. She was quite brilliant in her own right. She uh, spoke four languages. She was also, and this is helpful, a millionaire. Um, it sounds pretty good. However, just after their marriage in 1904, Stanley suffered a severe schizophrenic breakdown, which had a large psychosexual component. And of course, this is what interests me. Uh, he was uh, essentially, he spent the rest of his life at Riven Rock, but for 20 years, he was unable to lay eyes on any woman, because if he saw a woman, he would physically assault her. That includes his mother, his sister, his wife. Um, Catherine stuck with him in 1927. She brought in a Freudian shrink by the name of Edward Kemp, who, uh, through analysis with Stanley, helped to bring up some repressed material. And although schizophrenia is largely uh, you know, a genetic disease, still, I think there are psychological components. He was also then 50 and calmed down a bit. He was then able to see his wife again. So I see this as a very tender love story. And uh, <laughs> also, what brought it to mind is there are monkeys in this. The first primate lab in this country, the second one anywhere in the world, was on the Riven Rock Estate from the years of about uh, 1910 through 16 or so. Uh, the shrink of the day, and I'm not making this up, Gilbert Van Tassel Hamilton, uh, convinced Catherine uh, he, by the way, wrote a book about, one of the early books about sex in marriage. Uh, convinced Catherine that if she would fund this primate lab, he was a student of Robert Wilkes at Harvard, um, uh, he could you know, do experiments on the, the monkeys and baboons and so on and, uh, as to their sexual behavior and apply this somehow to Stanley and Stanley's cure. Of course, it was a little quixotic and it didn't work out. But yeah, I do like monkeys. Um, yes. Tom, you developed this wonderful, readable characters. Do you begin a book project by thinking of character, or are you into the plot? Boy, that's a tough question. Um, all things I write, whether it's a two-page story, a longer story of 20 pages, like what you just heard, or a novel of 350 or 550 pages, simply to me is a story. And I have an idea of how long it will be and how complex it is and, and what needs to be dealt with. But. Uh, um, I often will research a subject first, even for a short story sometimes, like this one. I had to know a little bit about Alaska where I've never been, and I'm sure that if there are any old Alaska hands here, you may detect uh, some problems with it. I'm not sure. I try to be as accurate as I can. Uh, the process of doing that, a little bit of research, or in terms of a novel like the one I'm working on, a lot of research, um, helps to suggest certain things to me. Helps to suggest maybe some characters, uh, Obviously, I'm writing about Stanley and Catherine who existed, and I've invented other characters to go along with them. Um, I don't really know the answer to the question, though. Uh, at a certain point, the research is over. That's important to know, by the way. You know, some writers never write anything because they research forever, and it's a way, sort of like my reading the LA Times twice, to put it off. Uh, finally, the research is over. Uh, the research, I think, if you're not a historian, as I'm not, is simply to stimulate you creatively. Uh, you can always go back and, and, and catch up on what you need to know as you go and progress through the project. And you don't know. Uh, a first line will begin to occur to me, and the language is really what starts it. And once that line occurs, I follow it. I never know in any story I write what is going to happen, where it's going, what it's about even. Uh, for me, the, the, the fun of this and uh, the joy of it is it's a process of discovery. How is this story going to work itself out? I never know. And uh, it's a thrill and a challenge. I think it's, it's a talent that we writers have. 
it's a, a talent of synthesis. Uh, just as when you were a kid writing a paper in school, you know, you read a lot of things, you take some notes, and uh, the paper is never quite the way you thought it was going to be. Well, so is it true with any fiction. You have to follow it where it's going. So I really say, our first line in language starts it. As in this story, there are 107 of them. That line occurs to me at some point, and then I follow that as to where it's going to go. You know, I think it would be impossibly abstract to plot something out and say, well, on this day, so-and-so will meet so-and-so. To me, that seems so... That's something that's more generic. It's, it's not really as liberating as, as trying to follow something and discover something. Do you have any concept then of the ending? I mean, it, it really does not sound like you outline, you develop some character at the beginning, but... No, I don't, but at some point, of course, uh, usually about midway through, sometimes three quarters of the way through, I discover the ending. Uh, actually, in the novel that I'm working on now, uh, I'm just about a third of the way through, and uh, this is unusual, but I uh, know what the last few lines will be. It, it just is one of those things. But as with East Disease, for instance, I uh, discovered those lines um, you know, within uh, 20 pages of the end. And then, for those of you who know The Road to Wellville, I did not realize that, uh, that Dr. Kellogg was going to murder his errant son, George, by drowning him in that big vat of macadamia butter until it happened. <laughs> and so that was a real surprise for me, but it seemed absolutely right. Yes? Uh, what made you decide to get a PhD in British literature in the 19th century? Well, uh, I was a very poor uh, student in high school and as an undergrad student. I barely made it through. And I didn't discover writing until I was a junior in uh, college and blundered into a creative writing workshop. Uh, so I didn't really have any plans as to what to do in life. Um, I've applied to the Iowa Writers Workshop on the strength of a couple of stories I'd written and gotten published and uh, mercifully they accepted me because they consider you on the work rather than your record. Once I got there though, I came under the influence of uh, Frederick McDowell who was a wonderful lecturer and teacher uh, and his specialty was 19th century. Why I decided to get a PhD, most writers, you know, would be satisfied with an MFA. One of my teachers there was educated only to the 11th grade when he was kicked out of the Thayer Academy for smoking. I'm referring to John Cheever. So you don't really need a degree. Uh, but I didn't know anything at all about anything. And I felt it might be helpful to know something if I were going to write. And um, uh, because of the 19th century, uh, I, uh, and the things I learned, I wound up writing my first novel set right at the turn of, of uh, the century um, called Water Music, which deals with the uh, explorations of Mungo Park, the Scottish explorer, the man who, uh, we'll put it in quotes, discovered the Niger River. Of course, in my version, you know, he's running down the dock and jumping into the water while people are going by and dug out canoes and doing laundry. He says, Eureka, I discovered it. But had I not done uh, that PhD, I wouldn't have been able to write that book. So, at least it paid off more. Also, I wanted to teach, uh, and I continue to teach to this day. I, I really enjoy teaching, although um, I started the writing program, the undergrad writing program at USC when I started there. Susan added two years. I'm beginning my 19th year in the fall. Uh, as soon as I came out of Iowa, I started the writing program, uh, and I haven't ever taught British literature. I only taught writing. Uh, but I will enjoy it and continue to do it, even though uh, it's, a, it's a fairly healthy commute. 
Don't feel sorry for me. 52 afternoons a year. Uh, a few more questions. Anything uh, you know, regarding craft and so on, which I think we're supposed to be addressing? Yes. Uh, I would like to know, when you first began to write the early novels, how long does it take you from the moment you sit down, let's say today was day one, until you finish, how many drafts do you go through? Do you have what Anne Lamott called a shitty draft and then go from there? <laughs> no. Uh, I was trying to address that with the very first comment. Uh, everyone works in a different way. My first draft is finished. Uh, I, of course, I'm a Luddite, and I still work on the typewriter, so I type up a clean draft, but it's, it's done. When I finish the first draft, that's it. There are no changes, there's no changing chapters, eliminating lines. I just polish it, type it, and hand it in. However... But you're saying that now. I mean, with the early novels, when you first began... I've always worked this way. I've always worked this way, line by line, very patient. Now, I might write a page one day, I might write four pages the next day, I might write none the following day, but just go over what I've done. I go over what I've done until it's set. I, I, I feel very nervous if I don't feel that what's come before is good. How can you go on with a 550-page novel if you feel that there's a problem on page 100? I could never do that. I could never just plow through. Well, it's just that a lot of people do a lot of rewriting. And, uh, I do, but as I go on, each day, each line, over and over. Sometimes a single page will be written ten times. So you're cleaning up after you go As I go along, I clean it up, yes. Thank you. You're welcome. But again, I like to emphasize that everyone has a different style of working. There's no uh, talisman, you know, there's no magic formula. You have to devise what's best for you. And many writers do blow right through a draft to get it all, the energy, and get it all together. Uh, but, you know, if you consider what I said about the, it being a process of discovery, then, for me, moving more slowly through it um, is, 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 is advantageous because the unconscious mind is resolving the problems and telling me where to go. Um, and further to your question, uh, Water Music, 550 pages, took me three years. Um, World's End, equally long and complex, took me three years. Wellville, less complex but just as long, took me 14 months. Um, the Riven Rock, which I'm working on now, which will be of that, uh, that complexity of the early novels, should, I think, take me about 18 months. How about East Disease? East took 14 months, but that's 350 pages. Um, I, I'm working faster as I get older because I began to realize a few years ago that you generally write more while you're alive than after you're dead. <laughs> yes? So many films seem to lose something in the translation from print to film. How would you feel about uh, the film treatment of Road to Wellville and what do you learn from it? Well, I should say first that I had nothing to do with the film of Road to Wellville. Uh, I refuse to work in any capacity for anybody. All I do is write fiction. It's all I'm interested in doing. I don't want to do anything else. So I've never been tempted to write any screenplays or etc. cetera. Uh, this was understood from the beginning. Alan Parker, who made the film, and I have the same agent. And uh, there was never any you know, chance that I would ever participate in any way. So I gave Alan carte blanche to do as he pleased. He wrote the script himself. Um, I thought he did a great job. I'm the only guy in the history of books to films who enjoyed the movie. I thought he did a great job. Obviously, you know, the critics are saying, well, it's, it's kind of surfacy and he's, it's just the absurd humor that he doesn't really get in, dig into the themes and so on. Well, perhaps. But, you know, I had 500 pages and he had uh, two hours. I think for what it was, it was a very unusual 
original film. Yeah, you go to see a film today, and there are ten coming attractions, all with that same guy with that rumbling voice, you know, that everything is monumental. And you, you know from the first minute you've seen every single film already a hundred times. At least Alan's movie was totally unique. You have no idea what's going to happen, or where you are even in a film like that. I think that's, that's to his credit. I, I like what he did. What other authors, if any, would you consider to be influences on you? Well, I, you know, it's a tough question because there are at least a hundred, maybe more. Uh, early on, when I first started to write as, a, as an undergraduate, I, I wasn't a good student, but I was sort of caught up in the intellectual ferment of the campuses at the time. And I was reading writers who were current then. I had no, you know, to your previous question, I had no background, you know, in what you're supposed to have read, again, which is why I did the PhD. So the early writers that, are, that influenced me were uh, the absurdist playwrights of the 50s and 60s, like, as you know, UNESCO, um, writers who were current when I began writing, like Garcia Marquez and Thomas Pynchon, Flannery um, O'Connor, John Barth, Robert Coover, Donald Barthelmey, people who had... Uh, a wild, unusual sense of humor, uh, Jorge Luis Borges. Um, uh, then, of course, I read more traditional things, and that, that helped me. Uh, again, you know, I read every three-volume novel of the 19th century, or at least I carried them around. Um, today, uh, writers that I really admire are, uh, and I always leave some out, but there are a lot of them, uh, Louise Erdrich, uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, Dennis Johnson, the late Raymond Carver. Uh, there were a lot of really marvelous writers uh, working out there now. Richard Ford. Um, many, many wonderful writers. And I'm influenced by all of them. Uh, influenced by everything I read. Yes? If you go through the, the marketing scenario from your earliest efforts to get published. Could I go through the marketing scenario from my earliest efforts to get published? Um, well, I uh, started writing stories. I don't know why, I just did. And I didn't know anybody and didn't have any connections and didn't attend any workshops and had no one to advise me. So I began looking in the back of the Army Awards and the Best American Stories for the lists of the magazines that appeared most frequently. And I began to send the stories to them blind. Uh, I was fortunate in that Robley uh, Wilson of the uh, North American Review picked up two of my stories. Subsequently, I went to Iowa and uh, began rapidly to, uh, to publish more. I think the fourth story I placed was with the Paris Review. George Clinton has been a lifelong friend and supporter of mine as a result of that. Um, the fifth story was in, in Esquire. Uh, in those years, the stories, I, if I published one or two a year in small venues, I was lucky. Um, by the time the first book came out in 79, um, now, by the way, you don't need an agent until you have a book. At that point, uh, Robert Coover, who had become a friend of mine, uh, suggested his agent to me, George Bouchard. George Bouchard has been my agent ever since and is one of my closest friends and supporters and is the best agent in the history of the universe, in my estimation. Um, and he's, he helped me a good deal. My first two books came out with Atlantic Little Brown, Peter Davison, a, a marvelous poet, great man, was, was my editor. Um, I was unhappy with the uh, sales. Both books got fabulous reviews. Uh, but you know, um, I have high expectations. I, I haven't told you what my ambition is. It's personal world domination. <laughs> um, 
And I guess the book sold fairly well for our first novel. I think Water Music sold 7,500 copies or something, you know? And by the way, it's been in, all my books have been in print always and sell more each year, so that's a good sign. Um, at that point, I asked George if we might move. And so he auctioned off the third book, Betting Prospects, which Peter wasn't hot on anyway. Viking picked it up, and I've been with Viking ever since, though it's through eight books. And the Riven Rock will be my 11th. This story you heard is from a half-completed book of stories, which will be my 12th book. Um, and yet at, Vi at Viking, uh, it wasn't until my fifth book, World's End, in 1987, that I realized that there was a marketing director. <laughs> By then, they, they finally decided, this is the book, we will push it. And lo and behold, they pushed it, and so it was successful. I know, and the books ever since have been successful. Publishers will deny it. I, I was arguing with my Dutch publisher in, uh, in Holland this past fall, uh, in a friendly way, about this. I said to her, point blank, you know, the more you get in advance, the more they put the pressure on the salesman, the more books you're going to sell. No, 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 no. But finally, after a drink or two, she admitted that that is, in fact, the case, and I believe it is. Uh, I, I think that uh, Viking has been great. They've been behind me all the way. All my books are in Penguin. They, they bought the rights to the previous books. And uh, because I've been very productive, been before the public a lot, I think that the audience is steadily growing. It's very, very gratifying. Obviously, everyone wants to uh, shoot the moon the first time out, but maybe you don't do that, you know. You have to realize you're on for the long haul. So that, in a nutshell, that's it. Yes. Excuse me. We're running oh. short on okay. time. Yeah. So I'd like to have these last two questions. Okay. If you don't mind, however, sure. I'd like to ask you to go into the front. Okay. Front. Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Having lived in Alaska for many years, you did a great job. Yes, thank you. Good. Good job. And my other question is, a lot of your work is based, in fact, in reality. When you take the truth and then call it fiction, at what point do you begin to deviate? The truth. You know, that's a, it's a good question. Um, and then, you know, Alan Parker, whom we mentioned, is a case in point. Uh, in point is Mississippi Burning, a, a fictional film, you know, about the civil rights movement, which posits these two FBI guys as the heroes of the civil rights movement. Um, a lot of people find that difficult to take, and I must confess that I do myself as well, uh, which is perhaps why my historical novels have gone as far as, let's see, uh, World's End uh, goes from Dutch times in New York up to around 1969. I've never, I, that's why I, I like to work in the past a bit. Um, I don't violate what I know to be history. For instance, you can't have a guy like Mungo Park, you know, die when he's 12, you know, because he was an historical figure. Um, but, uh, I like to know as much as I can and be as accurate as I can. However, if something will interfere with the progress of a fiction, I have no qualms about changing it. Uh, but it's all relative, you know, as I say. Oliver Stone's movie of JFK, you know. Uh, you're making a fiction of history because you love history and you want to impart some of the beauty of it and interest in it to other people. That's my take on it. Not to distort it necessarily, but to give a version, because, you know, of course, history, any history you read is a version anyway. But still, I think we could all agree on certain true facts, and I wouldn't violate those unless I had to. Um, yes? Uh, uh, this process question, do you um, write sequentially, or do you have several things going at once, and if you do, how do you go? I write 
uh, just one thing at a time, line by line, as we said earlier. And I would never consider starting another project in the middle of, of one that I was working on because I might not finish it. Now, this may sound like a contradiction because I just said I have half a book of stories done. What I like to do with stories is uh, uh, the joy of writing a novel is um, you know what you're going to do tomorrow morning. Um, one of the problems is, though, anything that occurs to you tonight that stimulates you, you can't really use because you can't work it in. You have to write it down on a little slip of paper and put it away. Uh, the joy of writing stories is whatever occurs to you, you can write tomorrow. However, the drawback is you have to go through that period each month when you've finished one and you don't have another one started yet, and that's pretty tough. Um, I save up story ideas, and generally I'll write half a book of stories in between novels. That way, it gives me two distinct and complete periods with totally fresh ideas, so I can have a very full and rich book of stories, rather than trying to do all the stories at one point. So these stories I finished um, last June, I wrote the last of them. I began writing the novel in December after doing the research for it. I've finish it by next spring, at which point I'll finish the stories. So I'm looking to do uh, Riven Rock in the spring of 98 and the stories in 99. And of course, I have to have a short contemporary novel out for the year 2000. How could I not? So thank you very much. It's been a wonderful audience.